Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, it is time to get started. Well, I want to I start with a question this morning. Do you know who this is? Somebody shout it out. Pretty powerful guy in our state. No, no applause or anything. Just do you know who he is? What's his name? Greg Abbott, right. He's the governor of Texas, right? Well, so that was the first question. Do you know who he is? Second question, a little different. Do you know him? Anybody? Maybe you've been in the same room. Maybe you've shaken his hand or heard him speak. Anybody? Yep. You, you've been in the same room with him, Pam? Okay. But then another, a little bit deeper question, do you really know him, right? And maybe another way to say it is, does he know you? What's the difference between, what's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone and then really knowing someone? I want to suggest that it's conversation, right? You don't know someone and they don't really know you until the two of you have spoken, And today, I want us to know that we have someone infinitely more powerful than the governor of the state of Texas, the God of the universe, who knows us personally by name and has spoken to us in a very personal way. I want you to know that God wants so much more for us than to just know about him or to even know him peripherally as we talk about him in this room. He longs to have a desire, he has a desire for a relationship with us. And so I'd like us to think about that as we read the opening verses of our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I want you to have your Bibles open. We're going to be reading the entire text together today. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3, and we're going to pray together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's pray together. God, we so want to know you. Would you reveal yourself to us as we look into your word this morning? Would you just get me out of the way and would you speak to us through your word? God, we look forward to what you will teach us. Will you give us an open mind, an open heart to receive what you have um, to teach us today? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know that God has always been a God who speaks, right? In the beginning of time, he spoke the world into existence. And remember with Adam and Eve, he walked and he talked with them in the garden. He's a speaking God. He always has been. Last semester, we were in Exodus through Deuteronomy and we saw God speak to Moses in some really cool ways, right? I mean, he spoke to Moses in a burning bush, in the cleft of the rock, in the tent of meeting. The Bible even says he spoke to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. We saw him speak to everyone through amazing signs and wonders, miraculous plagues. He was a pillar of smoke and fire. And we, we heard that booming, terrifying voice and the sound of trumpets on Mount Sinai when he spoke to the people. And then he spoke the law 
to Moses alone on the mountain. And finally, his glory filled the tabernacle. That was some awesome stuff that we learned last semester. But I think these first three verses of Hebrews, they comprise the thesis statement for this whole book. And I think it's simply, that was then, and this is now. In these days, in the days that we still live in, God has spoken humbly, powerfully, and finally, ultimately, in his son, Jesus Christ. So I want to show you some cool things about this introduction. In this three-verse introduction, our author gives us seven attributes of Jesus that prove he is God in a way that this audience could understand. If you know me, you know I really like that number, seven. And I think that this audience really perked up to seven things listed in a row. Anytime they heard seven things like this listed, this is a complete and divine description. And so we're going to start with the first series of attributes. Jesus is the ultimate king. God always longed to be Israel's king. He wanted to be it. But they always wanted an earthly king. And sometimes they had good ones. Eventually they had good ones like David and a few others, but they, they often had really, really bad ones. All the way up until when, until when God decided to come in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, a totally different kind of king, a meek servant king who humbled himself to death on a cross. So our author puts Jesus in the highest place right off the bat. He wants him to be known as the king of kings, God himself. So he gives these three attributes. In verse two, he says, he is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. And again, in verse two, he made the universe. Only God could do that. No question. This is talking about, he is talking about God. And then finally, down in verse three, at the end of verse three, he sustains all things to include the universe by the word of his power. There was no mistaking to this audience. This author is describing Jesus as God, and he is the ultimate king, the king of kings. But Jesus is also the ultimate prophet. You know that Israel loved their prophets, right? Moses was their key guy, but they had many, many more uh, prophets. In fact, most of our Old Testament is made up of prophecy. And prophets spoke for God. They, they literally represented his voice. And Jesus was that prophet, like Moses, that they had been waiting for. He perfectly represented God. He perfectly represented his voice because he was God, right? So Jesus was God in the flesh. And as such, he was the radiance of God's glory. The tabernacle had nothing on him. God's glory filled the tabernacle and it was unmistakable. But in Jesus' presence, the radiance of God's glory was unmistakable. And he was the exact imprint of his nature. So nothing could be more representative of God than the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was God. He was the ultimate prophet. He spoke for God. And then finally, Jesus is the ultimate priest. Israel, this audience, understood the priest, right? The priest was the one who stood in between them as sinful men, mankind, and a holy God. The priest was the one who made restitution for their sins. Remember, once a year in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go. And so Jesus, he was both the sacrifice and the high priest who offered it himself. 
He made purification of sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. No high priest in their right mind would ever sit down. They never sat down in their service as high priests. But Jesus finished the work of the priesthood, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father on his heavenly throne. So our author has given us this sweeping introduction, a thesis statement that Jesus is above all. There's no one like him. He is God. And now he's going to start this argument slowly, piece by piece, that Jesus is a better word from God than anything else they've ever experienced. He just established, right, that Jesus is God. And so he's going to start in the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm, Jesus is better than angels. So why angels, you ask? I hope you talked about this a lot at your table. To the Jew, angels were mediators of the law of Moses. Remember when Moses was up on that mountain, on Mount Sinai, and it was covered in smoke and fire, he was alone there. And they knew that he received the covenant, and they believed that it, were, it was angels who delivered that covenant to Moses. Did you look up Deuteronomy 33.2 in your homework, I hope? It says, the Lord came from Sinai. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So Israel had this very high regard for angels. And over time, especially as we get into that, that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 400 years. And especially during that time, as they got farther and farther removed from some of these stories, they began to worship angels in a way that they were never intended. So this audience still has a, has a struggle with worshiping angels. So our author from chapter one, verse four, all the way to verse 14, is going to show his audience how Jesus is better than angels. But guess what? He's gonna do it using seven Old Testament passages. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. Seven Old Testament passages, and not just any scriptures, but most of these were the Psalms. And if, if you remember, Israel sang the Psalms. Psalms were their hymn book. And so this audience is hearing this without anything in front of them. They're going to recognize these particular scriptures because they've sung them over and over and over. They remember these. And so he, he has very strategically picked out seven that are going to really drive his point home. So I'm, I'm not going to reference each one because I hope that you look those up in your homework. But I'm going to show you how these seven scriptures, they make up four ways that our author proves that Jesus is better than angels. So we're going to start with a better name. Look in in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. No angel was ever called the son of God. And these particular references are from Messianic Psalms. So these are Psalms that Israel knew pointed to their Messiah. There's no way they thought their Messiah was going to be an angel. So an angel served as God's messenger, servant, and witness, but never as his son. Okay? So secondly, Jesus inspires better worship. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Angels worship at the throne of God. 
Everyone knew this. Um, There is a really cool story in Isaiah 6. Do you guys remember this? Um, When Isaiah sees this vision of angels worshiping at the throne of God, and there are these amazing creatures. They have six wings, and two wings are covering their face, and two their feet, and two are allowing them to fly. And they are repeating over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, John, that we studied two semesters ago, um, he gives us this really cool insight. John chapter 12, verse 41. I want you to write that down. Um, that passage um, is speaking of another text in Isaiah, but the, uh, our author John there says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. So when Isaiah talks about this vision of angels worshiping at the throne, they're already, they always have been worshiping Jesus. He has, he inspires better worship. Thirdly, he has a better throne. Look in verse seven and eight. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparison, beyond your companions. So angels are described here as servants or ministers, but the son is glorified as as divine. He is seated on the eternal, heavenly throne. And as such, he has a better reign than the angels. Look at verses 10 through 14. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So creation will perish, right? But the creator, the son, will not. He will never perish. He was there in the beginning as the creator and he will reign in the end. In fact, King Jesus is the one who sends out the angels for our sake, for the people of God. The church, verse 14, says they are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So what is the application we are supposed to to make from this text, these seven proofs that Jesus is definitely better than angels? Well, the application is made for us right here, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. It says, therefore, and anytime you read that, You think, what is the therefore, therefore? Based on all of these proofs that Jesus is better than angels, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miraculous miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this this author is saying, guys, if, if you thought the law of Moses was delivered by angels and you knew that it was binding and that if you if you broke that law, there were serious consequences. 
how much more should you pay attention to the gospel? This is the good news that God delivered personally in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. Words like Jesus said, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus declared that gospel. The apostles and disciples, they amplified that message. The Spirit confirmed it by signs and wonders and gifts given to the church that we're still experiencing today. I don't know about you, but I get a little distracted by my phone. Anybody else share that with me? And sometimes I'm, I'm trying to listen to my kids, but I'm typing, I'm trying to reply to a text. And so I'm saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, like this picture, my son will say, mom, pay attention. I'm trying to say something to you. And it shocks me back into, <laughs> into reality, right? And I say, oh yeah, I wasn't paying attention. I, I totally spaced out. I didn't hear what you said. I think that's the message this author is trying to send to his audience. Pay attention to what Jesus has said to you so that you don't drift away and get distracted by everything else that's clamoring for your attention. His word needs to have authority in your life, even when it's hard. Remember, these these guys are facing trouble and persecution. He's saying Jesus' word needs to have authority in your life. Pay attention to it. Well, we just, dis- we just said that there is no one higher in the heavenly realm than Jesus, right? But as such, this Jesus humbled himself and entered the earthly realm. And in the earthly realm, Jesus is better than any other human that ever lived. In fact, he was a better Adam. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we, were, we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here the author has taken us back to Psalm 8. And this is a time when David was marveling that mankind was made lower than the angels, so in, or in, the, in the earthly realm, but yet crowned with glory and honor. They were God's special image bearers, mankind different than angels. We got to bear his image. And we were given rule or dominion over the world. Remember the command given to Adam and Eve? Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So mankind was intended to have dominion over the earth. But our author says in 2, 8, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to man, right? I mean, that's clear. Things are not how they are supposed to be. So what happened? Well, in a word, sin, (laughs) right? The first Adam ushered in sin and death. 
<coughs> excuse me, Romans 5, 12 through 14 talks about this. Paul talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. And he's describing the second Adam as Jesus Christ. And he says this, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So the second Adam, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, he restored life and righteousness and order to the creation. Angels could not do that. Well, secondly, he was a better captain We're going to read verses 10 through 16. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their faith, of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, look back in verse 10, where it says there that it was fitting that God should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. I think a better translation of the Greek would actually be the word captain. Some translations say pioneer or trailblazer even. And I think that's a really good word to understand who Jesus is. It has a very militaristic undertone to the word. And my husband, he was in the army. And at one time he served as a captain in the army. And I was thinking about this. What makes a captain a good captain? I asked Raymond, especially when when you were going into battle. And he said, a good captain goes first. And he does it for the sake of his brothers and his sisters. So Jesus is a good captain. He's a better captain than any captain of any United States Army could ever be. He faces the danger ahead of you, for you, not for himself. He he faces the danger for you. The text says Jesus was perfected or made complete in this mission that God gave him as a human being. He was perfected in his humanness through suffering. By suffering what your sin and my sin deserved to suffer. He did that for us. He went first. So now what is true of Jesus is true of us. This is pretty cool. What are some things that were true of Jesus? Well, he tasted death. He faced the death that we deserve, so it's true of us. Our our sin has been paid for by Jesus' death. His suffering was substitutionary for us. And then by his resurrection... He defeated those two things that were ushered in when when Adam and Eve sinned. These two enemies that have haunted us for all time, death and the devil. Jesus defeated them by his resurrection. So now what's true of him is true of us. We have defeated death. We've defeated the devil. And then finally, his righteousness is ours. He willingly gives us his perfect righteousness. He lived And he faced every temptation 
that we've faced, and yet he did it perfectly without sinning. And he says, I want to give you that now to wear like a robe, my righteousness. What is mine is yours. So he faced every temptation that we do so that he can help us face them now. Verse 16 says he doesn't help the angels. He helps Abraham's descendants. That's the, that's the audience here, the Jews. But he also helps us too. He's a better captain. And then finally, he is a better brother. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I want you to go back and remember the first high priest. He was Aaron. Whose brother was he? Moses' brother. And they were both from the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes of brothers that made up the nation of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And so the first high priest was a brother in Israel. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews, and they saw him as a brother. But he trumps it all when he makes us his brothers and sisters. He makes, he's a better brother to all who would trust him for salvation. So he knows, guys, how to live, how hard it is really to live in a broken and fallen world. He knows every respect of it. He knows that we can't do it, period. He's never surprised when we fail. He knows that we cannot do it. So he did it for us. He knows sin can't go unpunished. So he took the punishment for us. He's a really good brother. He looks at you and he sees you as his family, someone that he's not ashamed of. You know, it doesn't matter what anyone else has ever said about you. You're not ruled by what they say. You're ruled by what he says. And he says that he's a brother to you who is proud of you. And he desires to help you. So there's this great passage in Romans 8, verses 15 to 17, where Paul reminds us of this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, our brother, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. Well, I think the application that the the first audience would have had would be very similar to ours. Uh, It would have been, don't be afraid but yet we know that we're all afraid. I have to admit to you guys that it's a huge struggle in my life. I struggle and fight with my fear and I have to lay it on the altar almost every day. And so I wanna ask you, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the future? I'm, I'm often afraid of the unknown. I just, I wish I could know what it was gonna look like, how it was gonna turn out, especially with my kids, right? Well, I can just assure you that Jesus has secured the future for us and for them, no matter what happens. We will all be glorified with him one day, and we will no longer be in the presence of sin, 
And that's something to be excited about, to look forward to with hope. Are you afraid of the past? A lot of us are afraid of that and how other people might perceive it. Well, I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, the past is over. He's finished the work on your behalf. He's not ashamed to call you his sister. We are heirs of the promise with him, so we don't have to be afraid. And I'm preaching to myself big time. We can suffer with him because he's a better Adam, because he's a better captain, because he's a better brother. He went first. I like this picture. He went first. He, Jesus has blazed a trail for us to follow, and he will lead us home. So let's trust him together. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful. So thankful that you revealed yourself to us so completely, so perfectly in the form of Jesus Christ. That you gave us a human being to look at because we can understand humans. And we're just so thankful that we see you in human form. We're so thankful that we have... Um, someone who knows exactly what it's like to be a human in a fallen world. We're so thankful for that. And God, we just admit that we struggle. We struggle to trust you. We struggle to, to stay the course. We struggle with our fear. We struggle to pay attention to you. We struggle to let your word have authority in our life. And we need your help. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to follow. So we're asking for that today. We're asking... God, that you would convict us and that you would challenge us and that we would be eager to respond, yes, that we want to trust you together. Uh, Would you help us, God, in our unbelief? Would you help us in those areas where we just struggle to believe you? And um, we just thank you so much for Jesus and for the way that Hebrews makes him known to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.